The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1891, a man died in New York City, aged 72. His death was barely noticed. If the truth were known, said one obituary, even his own generation has long thought him dead. For 20 years, he'd been working as a customs inspector, a bureaucratic functionary who wrote some poetry on the side. Customs inspector. A job that brings one close to the sea while staying on land close to seagoers while remaining a landlubber. The salt air in the nostrils, the paycheck steady. A few who knew him knew that once upon a time, decades before, he had written some novels, which he gave up after poor sales and negative reviews. One headline of one review suggested he was crazy. Herman Melville crazy, it said. N.B., he wrote in response, I ain't crazy. But when he was still a boy, he had seen his father die in the throes of delirium, and it affected him, along with a host of other wild experiences. His adventures, his visions, his strengths and his flaws, even his reading and thinking and subsequent prose style, were all half-admirable and half-crazed, crashing through boundaries of conventional norms. He was an American original, this 72-year-old man who died in anonymity over 100 years ago. By the centennial of his birth, in 1919, he was widely admired as one of the greatest American authors, and a century after that, his fame has only risen, as he's now firmly in the American pantheon with figures like Toni Morrison and Mark Twain and his friend and neighbor, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Herman Melville, today on The History of of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Kicking things off with a bang this year. First Hemingway and now Herman Melville. Moby Dick, what a great time to be alive. Today, I mean, where we can Read books like this one. I might be diving into a lot of Melville this year, actually. Rereading Moby Dick, such an incredible book. And maybe we'll have to look at Pierre, Melville's wild semi-autobiography. I almost said crazy. I referred to that in the opening. This view of Melville as being insane. Well, now I revere it all. Those flights of wild prose, those ideas... Bubbling out of his head, I struggled with it when I was younger, but now I love it. Yes, let it all unfurl. <laughs> let that literary freak flag fly. Melville said the whole book was in his brain. He just had to scrape it out. He said he wanted to live near a paper mill and have an endless roll of paper just flowing from the mill to his house so he could fill it. A thousand, a million, a billion thoughts, he said. He had to get it all down, and it shows. Let me get this quote out of the way. This is Jill Lepore writing in The New Yorker. Reading parts of Moby Dick, she wrote in 2019, is like watching a fireworks in which Virgilian Roman candles, Old Testament sparklers, and Shakespearean bottle rockets pop off all at once, hissing and whistling. You get the feeling the stage manager is about to blow a finger off. 
If there's a showiness to Melville's pyrotechnics, his erudition was hard won. But this was among the qualities of his Moby Dick that reviewers found bonkers. The style is maniacal, mad as a March hare. End quote. And yet, it's an endlessly fascinating book, Moby Dick is. You can project a lot onto it, find a lot there. It doesn't hand you everything. And Hawthorne, who read the pages in manuscript and did much to advise Melville during the writing of Moby Dick, had a lot to do with that. Make it symbolic, he said. Make it emblematic. Make it allegorical. That was his counsel. And so people can read Moby Dick as the as representing the American push westward across the rolling prairie, as if the sea and or Ahab's obsession with the white whale were part of that spirit to travel across a continent. Or, or it represents the gold rush to California, which happened as Melville was writing the book. It has that connection as well. Well, also, many other possible interpretations for that white whale. But who was Melville? How did he live? How did he come to write this stuff? What was he hoping to do? And where did he succeed and fail? That's our story for today. But first, we're going to try again our little wheel of fortune with our man Franz Kafka, who seems far more modern than Melville. But then again, maybe not. Bartleby the Scrivener is pretty Kafkaesque, don't you think? And they were much closer in time than you might expect. We mark these centuries with such distinction. 18, 19, 20, 100 years apart, right? But there's no real reason for that other than our preference for round numbers. Just because Melville is 19th century and Kafka is 20th century doesn't mean they were 100 years apart. In fact, their lives overlapped. Kafka was eight when Melville passed away. We are, in fact, 99 years away from Kafka's death. Well, look at that. Speaking of round numbers, and speaking of coincidences, my book is full of 99 pieces of Kafka. What a nice bit of harmony. Maybe that augurs well for the year and this project. We've done two so far. Let's turn to our random number generator, which will give us a number from 1 to 99, and see what we get. 75. There we go, which in our book is that Kafka by Kafka biographer Reiner Stock takes us into the section marked Elsewhere and bears the title Kafka and Broad Gamble Away Their Travel Budget. Hmm, intriguing. So while you are listening to whatever we have for you at the break, I will be reading this little snippet. And then I'll report back. If it's boring, we'll just move on. If it's interesting, I'll tell you why. Kafka and Brode, that's Max Brode, of course, Kafka's great friend. Kafka and Brode gamble away their travel budget. And then Herman Melville, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We're back with number 75 in our catalog of Kafkaesque items from Kafka's life. Okay, so this one is pretty funny. Two excerpts from diaries, one from Kafka, one from Max Brode. They were traveling through Switzerland and encountered a legalized gambling den, which offered a form of roulette. A sign on the wall, which they both noted, said, We ask local residents to please give priority to our out-of-town visitors. And no wonder this was a moneymaker for the locals. First of all, it cost one franc to get in. Stock helpfully notes for us that their budget for the day, hotel plus food, would have been about 10 francs. So they spent 20% of that, two francs, to gain admission. And once they pay the admission fee, they are taken to a room where you can bet on numbers, and if the ball, there's a little ball, and if the ball lands on your number, you win, you double your money. You can also bet on odds and evens. So the two, the two of them, they're really novices. They start out and say, okay, I'll bet on odd and you bet on even, not realizing that they would end up only breaking even by that method. But even then, they wouldn't quite break even because the house has a built-in advantage. As they notice after they start playing, the only numbers offered are 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, and 9. 5 is where the house takes its cut. So you can't, win, you can't even break even just by taking odds and evens. You'll lose whenever a 5 comes up. So you'll lose, I guess, uh, a little more than 10% of, your, of the time. So they realize this. They switch their strategy and just pick odds only, hoping that odds will come up more than evens while they're there and hoping that the number five doesn't come up too much. And they end up, the money ends up sliding away slowly down a long slope, as Kafka puts it. In the end, they end up losing all 10 francs, their entire budget for the day. One more little nugget. According to Brode, when they left, they were despondent and they discussed whether they should go to the manager and say they were so despondent they were going to commit suicide on the idea that the manager might uh, hear that and then give them their money back. They decided against it and went on with their journey. Kafka never entered a casino again. Not bad. I like that one. Enough to play our little wheel game again next time. I get a bigger thrill out of running the number generator and and making my way to a Kafka moment serendipitously than get a bigger thrill doing that than I do playing gambling for money. This is the game where I always win. The house is much more giving. Maybe that's why books are better than money. Okay, so Herman Melville. 
was born in 1819 in New York City, New York can claim him rightfully as one of their most treasured assets. He died in New York, too, in 1891. He went to school, uh, sort of a preparatory school, at Columbia when he was a child. Other places were in his future, as we'll see, including adventures on the sea, trips to Europe, a stint in Albany, a stint in the Berkshires, and on some tropical islands, too. But New York City was really what formed him. New York and Manhattan in particular, that island, which of course was not the skyscraping metropolis we know today, but a bustling island surrounded by water, the river boundaries and the ports and the wharves, making Manhattan into the busy hub of commerce that launched New York and the rest of America, really. And that launched Melville's most famous narrator, Ishmael, who of course began... Moby Dick in the chapter one loomings section with a discussion of Manhattan as basically a spot filled with men who longed to be at sea, restless men, or in Ishmael's description, posted like silent sentinels all around the town stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries, end quote. His description of them chained to their desks and of himself grim about the mouth, ready to walk into the streets and knock people's hats off, bringing up the rear at funerals and pausing involuntarily at coffin warehouses with a damp, uh, sorry, a damp, drizzly November in his soul. Ishmael basically begins the book with this description of men in Manhattan sliding toward the sea like chess pawns on a tilted board. It's the, going to see is the substitute for blowing your brains out, he suggests. That does not seem to have been the case for young Herman Melville in New York City. Instead, he lived in a grand house on Bleecker Street and then on Broadway, elegant places staffed with servants. He was the heir to famous patriots and proud of his heritage. Both his grandfathers were Revolutionary War heroes. His father's father, Major Thomas Melville, the name had no E at that point, had been part of the Boston Tea Party and then made his bank as an importer in New York. His mother's father, General Peter Gansevoort, had defended Fort Stanwix against the British and was a friend of James Fenimore Cooper. Herman had seven brothers and sisters, four boys, four girls in the family. He was the third eldest and not all that promising, at least at first, he was sickly as a child, too, with scarlet fever that weakened his eyes for the rest of his life. A more dramatic impairment was that his father was living beyond his means, borrowing money from his parents, both his his own parents and his father-in-law, Gansevoort, which Gansevoort eventually cut off, leaving Melville's father in debt of 20000 bucks, which is about a half a million dollars in today's money. In spite of these financial woes, Melville's parents were apparently pretty good. Both mother and father were warm and loving. They were sensitive. They encouraged their children. The family atmosphere was one of happiness and learning and excitement. But because of the fiscal irresponsibility, the mood couldn't last. And without the family subsidies, they could no longer afford the fancy house in Manhattan. Melville's father moved the family to Albany, where he planned to import felt and furs, but the business collapsed, the family went broke, and Melville's father died 
after an illness that robbed him of his lucidity. Herman was 12 years old at the time. Lots of kids, no money, rich tastes, a proud pedigree, but increasingly desperate. That was a formative moment for Herman. Throughout his work, you can find father figures in decline, men who disappoint, who are crushed, the tormented psychology of the decayed patrician, as one biographer put it. Melville had a strong classical education with a lot of Greek, Roman, and English history, and he was steeped in the Old and New Testament. Shakespeare would come later, but he loved literature and the classics, and he began to do better in school. But with his family's financial collapse, he had to go to work. Gansevoort, Herman's eldest brother, got into the fur business, trying to make a go of that where his father had failed. Apparently, he did better than his father had done, at least at first. Herman got a job as a bank clerk for not too much money. The change in circumstances, going from posh living and reading and studying at at elite schools to toiling away in the bank, all because of his father's sudden bankruptcy and then death, was a blow that Herman never forgot. Gansevoort did well enough at that point that he needed Herman to help out in the fur store, which at least let Herman resume his education, though he didn't love sitting there and minding the store all day. But this is not the life he'd envisioned for himself, and help did not arrive in the form of inheritance. When his grandfather died, his, his grandfather Gansevoort, his mother's father, they found that his own father had borrowed so much against the inheritance that his mother only received 20 bucks. Things did not go too well in Albany. Herman was studying and Gansevoort was too, but eventually the fur trade business dried up and Gansevoort headed to New York City to study law. Herman found work as a farmer and a teacher, neither of which panned out to much. He was writing now, but not terribly successful at that either, and so he headed to New York City where Gansevoort had said that he was sure that Herman could find work on a ship, either a merchant vessel or a whaler. Herman signed up as a green hand on a trip from New York to Liverpool. He was now 19 years old. After he returned from that, he went with his brother to New Bedford. This may sound familiar to readers of Moby Dick. He signed on with a whaler, the Akushnet, for $86 and a promise of one 175th of the ship's profits. The two brothers went to, they listened to a sermon and they did other things in New Bedford that are kind of adopted into the opening of Moby Dick. Herman signed the contract to sail with the Akushnet on Christmas Day and they set sail on January 3rd. He slept with 20 other men in the forecastle. They harpooned their first whale in the Bahamas and started sending back oil soon thereafter. This trip took Melville around Cape Horn and into the South Pacific, chasing whales up the coast of Chile, and Melville's wild adventures began. He soaked up stories like a vacuum, everything about whaling and the men who did it. This was a young man who a few years before had taken great pride in naming all the different types of grass that he knew. He also had been following his brother's habit of copying passages from famous works on different subjects and cataloging the quotes to make them easier to find when needed for an essay or 
argument. He was particularly taken by the story of the whale ship Essex, which he'd been hearing about since he was a boy. About 20 years before the time period we're now in, a whale ship from Nantucket had been sunk by a sperm whale. The crew took off in the whale boats, where they soon ran out of food and water and suffered from dehydration and exposure to the sun. They eventually had to eat one another to survive. First, the crewmen who died, and when that source ran out, they drew lots to see who would sacrifice their bodies for the survival of the others. It was a harrowing story, but for a young man with a taste for adventure and a desire to write books, an unforgettable one. After the Akushnet had killed several whales and sent hundreds of barrels of oil back home, Melville and a friend jumped ship. He stayed for a while on an island, which he later used as source material for his book Taipei, and then got on an Australian boat to get off the island, but things didn't go all that smoothly there, and he wound up participating in a mutiny and going to jail briefly. He and a friend escaped and lived as an omu, or island rover, in Tahitian, a beachcomber, basically, and this gave him the stories for his second book. He couldn't get either of these books published in the States. Publishers found them too fantastical, such as his descriptions of living among cannibals. They didn't think it could really have happened. But Gansevoort was now living in London, and he was able to find publishers for the books there. And they became bestsellers almost overnight, and Melville became famous. Who was he? What kind of author was he? He had developed a kind of grandiose sense of himself while at sea, intelligent, adventurous, marked by greatness, but suffering unfairly due to circumstances out of his control. His mother had become very religious after his father's death, and something about the wide-open ocean called to him, suggesting the presence of God or the infinite, and his soul expanded to fill the entire universe. He identified with different forms of existence, all different cultures, the downtrodden, the overlooked, the eschewed, as well as the foreign and often misunderstood. Those were Melville's people. He hated authority. He longed to be free. He longed to be great. His mind was overloaded with ideas. He got them into his books, and he hoped he would be remembered as more than just a man who had lived among the cannibals. He drew from Shakespeare and Byron and a kind of, had a kind of romantic view of himself, as expansive as the young country America was then. Hawthorne recognized Melville's vigorous writing and the freedom with which he could express his tolerance of codes and morals that were outside the norm. In fact, it was a very modern sensibility in Melville in the sense that, that he challenged those norms, asking why the norm should be the norm one of Melville's and Moby Dick's greatest qualities. Who are we to say that Queequeg's religion is wrong or barbaric? He was a king in his culture, refined, dignified, and worthy. From his point of view, it's Christianity that's barbaric. Ishmael notes that he's learned to be tolerant of all religions and cultures, looking instead for what's in a person's heart, unless as he says, the religion starts to harm others or insist on itself as the only correct path to faith or spirituality. And he notes that to outsiders, Christianity has its flaws, its incomprehensible doctrines, its funny-seeming practices, and Christianity can be failed by its practitioners too. 
Not everyone claiming to be a Christian is a saint. Better to sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. He thinks when beds are scarce and he's contemplating whether it's safe to share one with Queequeg. Like Ishmael, Melville was optimistic and looked for the good in people, but he was also shrewdly observant and canny enough not to be naive. He admired Emerson and said, "He well, Emerson might be a fool, but if so, then Melville would rather be a fool than a wise man. He said, I love all men who dive. Any fish can swim near the surface, but it takes a great whale to go down five miles or more. He liked what Emerson was trying to do, even if he thought Emerson might err a little on the Pollyanna-ish side. I do not oscillate in Emerson's rainbow, he wrote in a letter, but prefer rather to hang myself in mine own halter than swing in any other man's swing. End quote. Maybe the best way of describing the difference between Melville and Emerson comes in a note that Melville wrote in the margin of an Emersonian essay. Emerson had written, Trust men and they will be true to you. And Melville wrote, God help the poor fellow who squares his life according to this. <laughs> I love Let me repeat that. Emerson had written, Trust men and they will be true to you. And Melville wrote, God help the poor fellow who squares his life according to this. Let's take our last break now. And then we'll turn to Melville's marriage, his meeting with Hawthorne, and the writing of Moby Dick. But I did promise you some more about Shakespeare, and I'll add that here. In an 1849 letter, Melville wrote, quote, I have been passing my time very pleasurably here, but chiefly in lounging on a sofa, a la the poet Gray, and reading Shakespeare. It is an addition in glorious great type, every letter whereof is a soldier, and the top of every T like a musket barrel. Dolt and ass that I am, I have lived more than twenty-nine years, and until a few days ago never made close acquaintance with the divine William. Ah, he's full of sermons on the mount, and gentle, I almost as Jesus, I take such men to be inspired. I fancy that this moment Shakespeare in heaven ranks with Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael, and if another Messiah ever comes, twill be in Shakespeare's person. I am mad to think how minute a cause has prevented me hitherto from reading Shakespeare, but until now, every copy that was come a table to me happened to be in a vile small print, unendurable to my eyes, which are tender as young sparrows. But chancing to fall in with this glorious edition, I now exult in it, page after page. End quote. That was 1849, and he would soon exult in something else altogether, the work of a lifetime, the completion of his masterpiece, published, if not recognized at the time. The Scarlet Letter was 1850, Uncle Tom's Cabin came in 1852, and in between, in 1851, Melville's book, Moby Dick, or The Whale.
are back. Still in the years when Melville was at his peak as a celebrity and storyteller, famous for his early books with their wild adventures at sea. Hawthorne was an anonymous admirer of them. Melville was famous enough that he didn't get married in a church because he and his bride were worried that the crowds might be disruptive, so they were instead married in a private home. His new wife was Lizzie Shaw, the daughter of one of Melville's father's friends, who was also the Chief Justice of Massachusetts. Lemuel Shaw had been kind to the Melvilles and had offered some financial support, and it's been suggested that he was kind of the father figure Melville lacked. Melville appreciated Lizzie's good humor and loyalty, and their courtship was a whirlwind affair. Just three months after they met, they got married. They took a honeymoon to Canada and Montreal and settled down in a house on 4th Avenue in New York City. Melville had tried earlier to get a government job in Washington, but that didn't pan out. So he wrote a couple of books for money, finding, as a great many literary authors do, or many great literary authors do, that they try to write for the public, to try to write for money, and don't really succeed at it. Their attempts to write pot boilers, let's say, are they find that they can't escape their intellectual or artistic ambitions, so they end up with a book that's a monstrous hybrid, too intellectual to be a really good pot boiler and too much of a hodgepodge to be successful with the critics. And so his career on the wane, he went to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. While there, some friends introduced him to Hawthorne, and Melville was captivated. He had read and admired Hawthorne before his short stories, which he said were shrouded in blackness, ten times black. He thought Hawthorne was, as, this was before the Scarlet Letter, by the way, he thought that Hawthorne was as good as any writer America had produced, the closest thing America had to Shakespeare. Here's Melville in a letter from 1849. Quote, I have recently read his twice-told tales. I hadn't read but a few of them before. I think they far exceed the mosses. They are, I fancy, an earlier vintage from his wine. Some of those sketches are wonderfully subtle. Their deeper meanings are worthy of a Brahmin. Still, there is something lacking, a good deal lacking, to the plump sphericity of the man. What is that? He doesn't patronize the butcher. He needs roast beef done rare. None, nevertheless, for one, I regard Hawthorne in his books as evincing a quality of genius, immensely loftier and more profound, too, than any other American has shown hitherto in the printed form. Irving is a grasshopper to him, putting the souls of the two men together, I mean. End quote. Melville wrote reviews of Hawthorne's work, and he borrowed enough money from his new father-in-law to buy a farm near Hawthorne's property in Massachusetts. They had met briefly earlier at a party. He stopped by Hawthorne's house one day. He stopped by again. Hawthorne was not always available to Melville. He was busy working, busy writing, and then he wouldn't make time for Herman. And besides, he was 15 years older and not nearly as restless or, let's say, as socially desperate as Melville. Melville could be almost manic in his search for intellectual companions. But Melville was irrepressible, and the two of them became friends and allies, at least for a time, and Melville dedicated Moby Dick to Hawthorne. But eventually it seems that Hawthorne grew tired of Melville, 
whom he found exhausting. Melville may have been somewhat romantically in love with Hawthorne too, Hawthorne the dashing man who had titillated the Peabody sisters and who now did the same with Melville's sisters. Melville's successful period as a writer came crashing to a halt with the reception of Moby Dick, which flopped. And Pierre, or The Ambiguities, the follow-up novel, not only flopped with the public, but led to some vicious reviews. He turned to poetry then, which he wrote for his remaining decades. He was in his mid-thirties when he was basically washed up as a prose writer. What should have been viewed as his triumph and which has made him a household name 172 years after it was first published, was never successful in his lifetime, selling fewer than 3,000 copies. Hawthorne admired Moby Dick, but few others did. Here's Henry F. Chorley, writing for the London Athenaeum. Quote, This is an ill-compounded mixture of romance and matter-of-fact. The idea of a connected and collected story has obviously visited and abandoned its writer again and again in the course of composition. The style of his tale is in places disfigured by mad, rather than bad, English, and its catastrophe is hastily, weakly, and obscurely managed. The result is, at all events, a most provoking book, neither so utterly extravagant as to be entirely comfortable, nor so instructively complete as to take place among documents on the subject of the great fish, his capabilities, his home, and his capture. Our author must be henceforth numbered in the company of the incorrigibles who occasionally tantalize us with indications of genius, while they constantly summon us to endure monstrosities, carelessnesses, and other such harassing manifestations of bad taste as daring or disordered ingenuity can devise. We have little more to say in reprobation or in recommendation of this absurd book. Mr. Melville has to thank himself only if his horrors and his heroics are flung aside by the general reader as so much trash belonging to the worst school of bedlam literature, since he seems not so much unable to learn as disdainful of learning the craft of an artist. End quote. Other than that, Mr. Chorley, how did you like the masterpiece? Thrice unlucky Herman Melville, one reviewer said, referring to his two previous flops plus Moby Dick. He is gauging our gullibility and our patience, said another, this book is generally as clumsy as it is ineffectual. It's a lumpy book full of Melville's thoughts as well as his narrative, full of his learning and encyclopedic exploration of whales and cytology and whale hunting. Reviewers did not get it. A Loose Baggy Monster is a novel, said Henry James, but this one was too loose, too baggy, too monstrous, perhaps at least for those early reviewers. Melville was crestfallen. For the next few years, he struggled with his books, and the ones that did come out were also receiving these bad reviews. Hawthorne had gone to Liverpool now, where he served as American consul, and Melville met him there. This was a few years after Moby Dick and Hawthorne. I mention this because Hawthorne's description of Melville after they met in 1856, five years after the publication of Moby Dick, lets us know just how far Melville had fallen. Quote, 
Herman Melville came to see me at the consulate, looking much as he used to do, a little paler and perhaps a little sadder, in a rough outside coat, and with his characteristic gravity and reserve of manner. We soon found ourselves on pretty much our former terms of sociability and confidence. Melville has not been well of late, and no doubt has suffered from too constant literary occupation pursued without much success, latterly, and his writings for a long while past have indicated a morbid state of mind. Melville, as he always does, began to reason of providence and futurity, and of everything that lies beyond human ken, and informed me that he had pretty much made up his mind to be annihilated. But still, he does not seem to rest in that anticipation, and I think will never rest until he gets hold of a definite belief. It is strange how he persists, and has persisted ever since I knew him, and probably long before, in wandering to and fro over these deserts, as dismal and monotonous as the sand hills amid which we were sitting. He can neither believe nor be comfortable in his unbelief, and he is too honest and courageous not to try to do one or the other. If he were a religious man, he would be one of the most truly religious and reverential. He has a very high and noble nature, and better worth immortality than most of us. End quote. It might be too cute to say that the Melville described by Hawthorne chased literary greatness as his own white whale. It destroyed him too, Ahab-like, but with the passage of time, we see that Melville's harpoon had found its mark, and the results were not visible, but hidden beneath the surface. Maybe they had gone five miles down and needed a few decades to reemerge. The book today, Moby Dick, is rightly viewed as a stunning example of romanticism, bright, vivid, wild, full of imagination in the running for the great American novel, maybe in the lead. I'm going to save our discussion of Moby Dick because we will do an episode just on that book soon. I'm rereading it again. It just pulls you in. D.H. Lawrence did not really like Melville. He found him to be a tiresome New Englander a la Emerson, Longfellow, and Hawthorne, but he nevertheless found Moby Dick to be an incredible book. Quote, but he, speaking of Melville, but he was a deep, great artist, even if he was rather a sententious man. He was a real American in that he always felt his audience in front of him. But when he ceases to be American, when he forgets all audience and gives us his sheer apprehension of the world, then he is wonderful. His book commands a stillness in the soul, an awe. End quote. But this reception, this reappraisal, all the this came after all this praise for Melville, for Moby Dick, for Bartleby the Scrivener, Benito Cherino, for Billy Budd, which was discovered among his papers at his death, for Pierre and his novel The Confidence Man, and for his early novels too, especially Taipei and Omu. Even Melville's poetry today is often praised by critics. He wrote about the Civil War, which he lived through while in New York at his customs inspector job. He wrote about the the war with a kind of battles with a kind of concision that was not fashionable at the time, but which has worn well. He also traveled to the Holy Land and wrote an epic poem 
one of the longest poems ever written and published. It's also pretty well regarded today. In his lifetime, it sold something like 300 copies. I think a lot of those were actually given away. It cannot be read except as a task, said one reviewer. The end of Melville's life does not seem all that happy. His son shot himself in the face at the age of 18, perhaps accidentally and perhaps not. Herman struggled for money, and friends and family members advanced him money. Apparently, he was the only honest man working in customs in New York at the time, and he nearly lost his job and probably didn't make as much as he could have had he been on the take. But the president... Chester Allen Arthur protected him from losing his job without Melville ever knowing. Arthur admired his writing. Everyone did, at least those who remembered the old days. It makes me think of what things might have been like for F. Scott Fitzgerald had he lived to be 72. Ah, yes, that guy. Out of fashion now, I remember when we were excited for every new book that came out. But we've moved on now, haven't we? Yes, we often do that. But once in a while, we don't move on. Or we move on and come back because the books stay with us. We've been reading The Great Gatsby for the past century and Moby Dick for the past century plus. I'll close with a letter he wrote to Hawthorne in June of 1851 when I think Melville's life was at its peak. He was newly married, he had been a successful writer, he had written a couple of mediocre books, but he was now in the full Shakespeare-fueled energetic mania of writing the book that he knew was great. He was as boundless as the American prairie or the ocean, and he was living and working and writing and writing and writing and attempting to be as great as he believed he could be. We can pull passages from Moby Dick until the cows come home, or the, the whales, I guess we could say. And we'd find a lot of these same ideas transmuted into art and voiced by Ishmael. But this letter gives us the man, the artist, the seeker, the diver, the genius, maybe the slightly crazy person. It gives us Melville, Herman Melville, his mind and voice as he's excitedly talking to his friend. We spent the day smoking and talking metaphysics, he once said about a day spent with Hawthorne in his barn. Hawthorne lounging on the carpenter's bench, Melville sprawled on the hay. Our ontological heroics, Melville called their conversation. He followed it up with this letter. We don't have a lot of letters and papers for Melville. He was an ardent burner of correspondence, but this one survived and we're lucky to have it. Letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne, June 1851. My dear Hawthorne, I should have been rumbling down to you in my pine board chariot a long time ago, were it not that for some weeks past I have been more busy than you can well imagine, out of doors, building and patching and tinkering away in all directions. Besides, I had my crops to get in, corn and potatoes. I hope to show you some famous ones by and by, and many other things to attend to, all accumulating upon this one particular season. I work myself, and at night my bodily sensations are akin to those I have so often felt before when a hired man doing my day's work from sun to sun. 
but I mean to continue visiting you until you tell me that my visits are both supererogatory and superfluous. With no son of man do I stand upon any etiquette or ceremony except the Christian ones of charity and honesty. I am told, my fellow man, that there is an aristocracy of the brain. Some men have boldly advocated and asserted it. Schiller seems to have done so, though I don't know much about him. At any rate, it is true that there have been those who, while earnest in behalf of political equality, will accept the intellectual estates. And I can well perceive, I think, how a man of superior mind can, by its intense cultivation, bring himself, as it were, into a certain spontaneous aristocracy of feeling, exceedingly nice and fastidious, similar to that which, in an English Howard, conveys a torpedo-fish thrill at the slightest contact with a social plebeian. So, when you see or hear of my ruthless democracy on all sides, you may possibly feel a touch of a shrink, or something of that sort. It is but nature to be shy of a mortal who boldly declares that a thief in jail is as honorable a personage as General George Washington. This is ludicrous, but truth is the silliest thing under the sun. Try to get a living by the truth, and go to the soup societies. Heavens, let any clergyman try to preach the truth from its very stronghold, the pulpit, and they would ride him out of his church on his own pulpit banister. It can hardly be doubted that all reformers are bottomed upon the truth, more or less, and to the world at large are not reformers almost universally laughingstocks? Why so? Truth is ridiculous to men. Thus easily in my room here do I, conceited and garrulous, reverse the test of my Lord Shaftesbury. It seems an inconsistency to assert unconditional democracy in all things, and yet confess a dislike to all mankind in the mass, but not so. But it's an endless sermon, no more of it. I began by saying that the reason I have not been to Lennox is this. In the evening I feel completely done up, as the phrase is, and incapable of the long jolting to get to your house and back. In a week or so I go to New York, to bury myself in a third-story room and work and slave on my whale while it is driving through the press. That is the only way I can finish it now. I am so pulled hither and thither by circumstances. The calm, the coolness, the silent grass-growing mood in which a man ought always to compose, that, I fear, can seldom be mine. Dollars damn me and the malicious devil is forever grinning in upon me, holding the door ajar. My dear sir, a presentiment is on me. I shall at last be worn out and perish, like an old nutmeg grater, grated to pieces by the constant attrition of the wood, that is, the nutmeg. What I feel most moved to write, that is banned. It will not pay." Yet altogether, right the other way, I cannot. So the product is a final hash, and all my books are botches. I'm rather sore, perhaps, in this letter, but see my hand. Four blisters on this palm, made by hoes and hammers within the last few days. It is a rainy morning, so I am indoors and all work suspended. I feel cheerfully disposed, and therefore I write a little bluely. 
would the jinn were here. If ever, my dear Hawthorne, in the eternal times that are to come, you and I shall sit down in paradise in some little shady corner by ourselves, and if we shall by any means be able to smuggle a basket of champagne there, I won't believe in a temperance heaven. And if we shall then cross our celestial legs in the celestial grass that is forever tropical, and strike our glasses and our heads together till both musically ring in concert, then, oh my dear fellow mortal, how shall we pleasantly discourse of all the things manifold which now so distress us, when all the earth shall be but a reminiscence, yea, its final dissolution and antiquity. Then shall songs be composed as when wars are over, humorous comic songs. Oh, when I lived in that queer little hole called the world. Or, oh, when I toiled and sweated below. Or, oh, when I knocked and was knocked in the fight. Yes, let us look forward to such things. Let us swear that now, though now we sweat, yet it is because of the dry heat which is indispensable to the nourishment of the vine, which is to bear the grapes that are to give us the champagne hereafter. But I was talking about the whale. As the fishermen say, he's in his flurry when I left him some three, three weeks ago. I'm going to take him by his jaw, however, before long, and finish him up in some fashion or other. What's the use of elaborating what, in its very essence, is so short-lived as a modern book? Though I wrote the Gospels in this century, I should die in the gutter." I talk all about myself, and this is selfishness and egotism. Granted, but how help it? I am writing to you. I know little about you, but something about myself, so I write about myself, at least to you. Don't trouble yourself, though, about writing, and don't trouble yourself about visiting. And when you do visit, don't trouble yourself about talking. I will do all the writing and visiting and talking myself. By the way, in the last Dollar magazine, I read The Unpardonable Sin. He was a sad fellow, that Ethan Brand. I have no doubt you are by this time responsible for many a shake and tremor of the tribe of general readers. It is a frightful poetical creed that the cultivation of the brain eats out the heart. But it's my prose opinion that in most cases, in those men who have fine brains and work them well, the heart extends down to hams. And though you smoke them with the fire of tribulation, yet, like veritable hams, the head only gives the richer and the better flavor. I stand for the heart, to the dogs with the head. I had rather be a fool with a heart than Jupiter Olympus with his head. The reason the mass of men fear God and at bottom dislike him is because they rather distrust his heart and fancy him all brain like a watch. You perceive I employ a capital initial in the pronoun referring to the deity. Don't you think there is a slight dash of flunkyism in that usage? Another thing. I was in New York for four and twenty hours the other day and saw a portrait of N.H., and I have seen and heard many flattering, in a publisher's point of view, allusions to the Seven Gables, and I have seen tales in a new volume announced by N.H. So upon the whole, I say to myself, this N.H. is in the Ascendant. My dear sir, they begin to patronize. All fame is patronage. Let me be infamous. There is no patronage in that. What reputation H.M. has is horrible. 
think of it. To go down to posterity is bad enough, anyway, but to go down as a man who lived among the cannibals? When I speak of posterity in reference to myself, I only mean the babies who will probably be born in the moment immediately ensuing upon my giving up the ghost. I shall go down to some of them, in all likelihood. Type E will be given to them, perhaps, with their gingerbread. I have come to regard this matter of fame as the most transparent of all vanities. I read Solomon more and more, and every time see deeper and deeper and unspeakable meanings in him. I did not think of fame a year ago as I do now. My development has been all within a few years past. I am like one of those seeds taken out of the Egyptian pyramids, which, after being three thousand years a seed and nothing but a seed, being planted in English soil, it developed itself, grew to greenness, and then fell to mold. So I. Until I was twenty-five, I had no development at all. From my twenty-fifth year, I date my life. Three weeks have scarcely passed at any time between then and now that I have not unfolded within myself. But I feel that I am now come to the inmost leaf of the bulb, and that shortly the flower must fall to the mold. It seems to be now that Solomon was the truest man who ever spoke, and yet that he a little managed the truth with a view to popular conservatism, or else there have been many corruptions and interpolations of the text. In reading some of Goethe's sayings, so worshipped by his votaries, I came across this, live in the all. That is to say, your separate identity is but a wretched one. Good, but get out of yourself. Spread and expand yourself and bring to yourself the tinglings of life that are felt in the flowers and the woods, that are felt in the planets Saturn and Venus and the fixed stars. What nonsense. Here is a fellow with a raging toothache. My dear boy, Goethe says to him, you are sorely afflicted with that tooth, but you must live in the all and then you will be happy. As with all great genius, there is an immense deal of flummery in Goethe, and in proportion to my own contact with him, a monstrous deal of it in me. H. Melville. P.S. Amen, saith Hawthorne. N.B. This all feeling, though, there is some truth in. You must often have felt it lying on the grass on a warm summer's day. Your legs seem to send out shoots into the earth. Your hair feels like leaves upon your head. This is the all feeling. But what plays the mischief with the truth is that men will insist upon the universal application of a temporary feeling or opinion. P.S. You must not fail to admire my discretion in paying the postage on this letter. Okay, there we go. Herman Melville, an exemplar of that classic paradigm, the genius who goes undiscovered in his lifetime. We have a lot more examples of famous writers who are forgotten by posterity. He's one who wasn't. Check out his books sometime. They're powerful and illuminating and a joy to read. He was living in the all and writing in the all. I don't find him as tiresome or as preachy as Lawrence does. And even Lawrence gets swept away at times. The man brays like an ass, he said. Brays, brays, brays. But the artist. Ah, the artist. 
We will be back next week with Emma Smith, who's going to be bringing us some portable magic. How's that for a teaser? That's a very fun episode. I think I'll dip into Kafka again. Why not? We're on a roll. And Emma, producer Emma, has been pushing me to read and explore an Edith Wharton short story. So we might do that too. And hey, while we're in the Berkshires with Herman, why not stop off and see what Edith has to say? Speaking of having things to say, I only have one more thing to say, for now at least. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.